This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Like most of you, I have been enjoying a restriction-free life of late. It feels nice to think about attending a concert or going to a movie theater. As a hater of masks, I'm glad not to be constricted by them any longer. And I'm getting ready for my first road trip, a trek to the ISI homecoming event in Delaware. Perhaps I will see some cultural debris listeners there. If you enjoy the podcast and are interested in supporting Cultural Debris, please leave a five-star rating and a positive review. Also consider visiting the Cultural Debris Patreon at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. A continued thank you to those who are already supporting the cause. Last time I mentioned the Globe Warnicky Barrister bookcase I recently purchased, I finally had the glass replaced in the two doors where it was missing. The bookcase is edging ever closer to housing actual books after I needed wipe down from decades of grime and an application of beeswax furniture polish. I took the opportunity to have long missing glass replaced in another barrister I have, one that was gifted to me several years ago. It looks quite handsome now. For the moment, all barristers in the house have appropriate glass. I'm also trying to rearrange some books, but that's always a challenging enterprise. I have books in bookcases all over the house. This particular case, which resides in the foyer, has short shelves, particularly on the top two shelves. So only books that themselves are short will go in there. Also, because of the foyer location, I want books that show well, since they greet visitors upon entry. I ordered a Japanese moss broom from England, which isn't necessarily where you would expect to find a Japanese moss broom, but there's a company there called Nowaki, and they sell them. They import from Japan, and then they sell to places like Kentucky, I suppose. So far, I've received the wrong broom the first time and a bamboo rake the second time, but they assure me my moss broom is on the way, which will make my patio moss very happy. Our poem is by my old professor, friend, and neighbor, Jane Gentry, from my attic window. I see the roofs of neighbors' houses and the muscle of a bird's back as it flies into the red ribs of sunset beyond the courthouse clock. All that sideways light gilds the familiar singes the dark spine of the yellow wood in my backyard, my sway-backed garage, the house next door, and lays long black shadow out behind them like an overleaf. Across the field that I can only see the edge of shines my mother's window, another face behind it now, from which she watched each night darkening the world. My guest today is Jeffrey Bilbro, editor of the Front Porch Republic, which is kind enough to host show notes and provide links for cultural debris. 
Jeff is a fellow devotee of Wendell Berry. He has written a new book from IVP called Reading the Times, a literary and theological inquiry into the news. We discuss setting priorities in a Twitter world with a bit of talk about higher education thrown in. We even have nice things to say about Henry David Thoreau. Jeffrey Bilbro, welcome to Cultural Debris. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. Uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts, so it's an honor to be on here with you. Uh, well, I thank you very much. I really do appreciate that. I, I will say, um, reading your book, and of course, we're, we're talking about your new book, Reading the Times, but as I was uh, contemplating what you were, you were discussing, and we will talk about this as we go along, you were talking about you know, warning people about, about uh, you know, what protecting your mind and what 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 goes into uh, into your brain and uh, sort of these distracting things and you were warning people even about TED talks and things like that and I thought what about podcasts where to are pod are podcasts okay and so uh, so I, I, I had a, a brief existential crisis about having you on the podcast because I'm uh, but I, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, that's a good question. I think yeah, podcasts can be great. You know, I mean, of course, they're all different varieties. It's a very capacious genre. But one of the things I like about podcasts is that you get to listen in, uh, eavesdrop on a conversation where hopefully people are thinking out loud, thinking in public, and you can kind of watch people uh, correct and change their minds and and grow. So that's a a rare occurrence in today's media world. Yeah, I th I, th I think that it is a medium that can be used for good, and that's uh, that's at least my purpose in doing it. I mean, I I will admit, and I I may have uh, I may have broken this uh, this secret in the past, but really one of the the big reasons why I do the podcast is because I can get interesting people to uh, sit down and talk to me for a while that otherwise probably wouldn't do it. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a selfish motive, but you know, I, I, it's nice to be able, like you said, to sort of think out loud and have these conversations about hopefully a, a little bit more weighty matters without being, uh, without being too somber about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the Ted talk genre it always strikes me as kind of pretentious. You know, I'm going to, in 15 minutes, I'm going to solve this problem that is, uh, you know, everyone recognizes as an existential crisis problem. <laughs> right. Uh, and a podcast doesn't have to be nearly that ambitious. Right. Yes. I, I, I try to stay as unambitious as possible <laughs> with my podcast Good. so that I, so I keep expectations low. That's and, why I'm uh, happy to be here. <laughs> Well, I mean, everybody's everybody knows that that you're you're bringing the quality on on uh, this conversation. But you uh, just before I started this, you and I were talking a little bit about your upcoming move. But you are a newly minted professor at Grove City College, and that's in Pennsylvania, I believe. What what can you tell me about Grove City? Yeah, Grove City. Uh, I mean, I haven't been there much myself. I've been there a couple times, actually three times now. Um, but it's about an hour north of Pittsburgh in a rural town of about uh, 9,000 people. And, and it's got a, it's got the college in town, but it also has some manufacturing. It has a, uh, a couple other substantial businesses. So there's, 
there's some economic and cultural life outside the college, which I think is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, we're looking forward to hopefully putting down roots there and uh, getting to know the Pennsylvania countryside better. Well, it's, that really is beautiful country. It's sort of it's a uh, Appalachian up there. You get some should get some nice foothills, I would think. And yeah, I think uh, so. And there's a couple of state parks nearby that I hear have some good trails, good biking. So yeah, we're excited. Well, very good. Uh, now, is it affiliated with a? Uh, I, I understand it's a Christian school. Is it affiliated with a particular denomination? Uh, I think officially no. Historically, it's Presbyterian. I'm not sure I which uh, breed of Presbyterian. Maybe before right. all the modern uh, differentiations, but yeah, it's Presbyterian. But uh, at this point, more kind of mere Christian. Gotcha. Well, we are going to talk about your new book, Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, and it is from IVP Press. I have, as it turns out, a lot of books in my library from IVP Press over the years, so um, they, uh, they've, they have published a lot of, uh, of very good and useful books in the past, and uh, this one certainly joins the, joins the, uh, the previous editions well, I think. Yeah, it's good. It's good company to be in. They they have been great to work with, and uh, you know, all my other books have been university press books, which is a delightful experience in itself. But uh, IVP has a whole different kind of marketing apparatus that has been new to me. But it's nice. So what what prompted you to write about this topic? Why? How did how did you decide that this is the book that I want to write? Yeah, and I suppose we might talk about Wendell Berry later, but it is in some ways kind of weird for me to write this book because uh, pretty much everything else I've written has to do with Berry or environmental ethics or those kinds of themes, agrarianism. But um, for at least 10 or 15 years, I've been thinking about print culture in 19th century America and shifts that happened then and how they might uh, relate to the, the shifts of the digital um media ecology today. And so I've been working on this book project for a long time that, that I'm maybe a third of the way through. Uh, it's a more scholarly book about this, but maybe three, three years ago or so, somebody, one of my Twitter uh, friends, if you can have a Twitter friend. Um, oh, I, I have a lot of Twitter <laughs> okay, good. That's, that's, that's actually most of my friends. I think. <laughs> so I, I hope you can. Uh, I, I guess you and I probably first met via Twitter too. So well, I, I think so. Yeah. Think Although we have met in real life, but um, yeah. So, so one of my Twitter friends said, ah, Christians need a book on how to read the news. And I thought that's true. And I thought, Oh, actually I've done a lot of research that could feed into this project. And so I thought about it for a few weeks. I, I tweeted back to him and said, you're right. Here's what I'm thinking about. And we kind of tweeted back and forth. And uh, one of the editors at IVP, John Boyd, was eavesdropping, I guess. And so he wrote me and said, you should do this, Jeff. And so I put up, put together a proposal, sent it his way, and uh, he helped me refine it. And, and then I sat down and wrote it. So yeah, it was. it's kind of a weird project, I suppose, for me in some ways. But in my mind, it flows out of the work I've done on community and culture, and then these this thinking about previous shifts in um, print communication technologies. Well, it's interesting. I've, uh, I have been reading off and on the past little bit. Um, I guess 
a book that's that's sort of related to this, and you you reference uh, the author of this book some in your in in your book here, which is Alan Jacobs' book on breaking bread with the dead: A Reader's yeah. Guide to a More Tranquil Mind. And um, I, I feel like that that your book feeds into a lot of what he's saying because uh, they're both really addressing the issue of sort of getting caught up in transient, um, just these sort of short term outrages of the day, I guess, I guess you will. And, and anybody who spends any time on Twitter as you and I do, and, uh, you, um, I think very wisely spend less on it than I do. Uh, you know, we're, we're all familiar with this, you know, something comes through, everybody's furious about it for a couple of days and then they move on to something else. And if you ask them, you know, what was it that you were mad about two weeks ago or a month ago, you, you couldn't tell them unless you went back and read your tweets or something and saw, saw what it was you were mad about. But we get caught up in this cycle and your, your book is really, is kind of trying to get us to recognize what we're in and what we're, what we're doing to ourselves. Yeah, that's right. And I think Jacobs has been certainly someone I've learned a lot from over the past few years. That book was excellent, but his book, I mean, I've been reading him for a long time. His book, uh, The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction, I thought was quite good, How to Think. He actually has a great essay that came out in Comet Magazine maybe half a dozen years ago uh, about digital technologies, distraction, and cultivating healthier habits of mind that I thought was quite good. So yeah, he's been a, a good interlocutor for, for quite a while. And I think his new book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, um, is, yeah, I think you're right to see them as a kind of a companion to what I'm trying to do in terms of, you know, not, he doesn't suggest that we shouldn't attend to what's going on now or the new things, but that we'll actually be able to uh, kind of calibrate our emotional responses better if we have uh, a grounding in older conversations and older cultures and stories and art so that our temporal bandwidth is more deep. So you've got, um, I, I was spent a lot of time jotting down great quotations that you had. You, one of the nice things about this book is it's sort of, it's a nice little commonplace book of some great, That's of right. some great quotations. But uh, early on in the book, you have this, um, you have this quote from uh, Joseph Pieper that the average person of our time loses the ability to see because there is too much to see. And that that's really kind of, I think, under the underlying theme of, of, of the book as a whole. And yet we think about what was how much less the people the people of Pieper's time had to see yeah. than we do. Yeah. Um, it, it's really incredible when you look at. Um, at quotes from, from Pieper. And, and of course you spend a lot of time talking about Thoreau and how in what we would consider this very, uh, slow paced, uh, from our perspective backwards time, right. Uh, that they were very concerned. Thoreau was very concerned about all of these exact same issues that you're writing about. Yeah, it's kind of eerie uh, sometimes to be reading somebody from, you know, 1840s 
and then they're worried about uh, trivia and information overload and uh, unhealthy news dynamics. And you think, man, this has been going on for 160, 180 years. Uh, and maybe it's amplified today, but I'm not sure that it's fundamentally, I'm not sure the dynamics are fundamentally different. So maybe it's, it's at least helpful to get some perspective and think about people or, or listen to people who have been wrestling with these problems for longer and in different uh, cultural and political context than ours. Well, uh, at first I have to own up to the fact that in, my, in the last podcast with Jared Zimmer, I, I did drag on Thoreau a little bit. So uh, in this podcast, we're going to speak well of Thoreau. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so just I'm just giving everybody an opportunity to catch up. But I, um, in the context it worked last week, because I was talking about Richard Weaver's essay comparing right, Randolph right. And, and Thoreau. But um, this is where Thoreau is really where you get the title of the book. He has the little sort of catchy, which is sort of interesting that Thoreau has a sort of, you know, sort of catchy uh, uh, turn of phrase there. Read, read not the times, read the eternities is his, um, is his encouragement. Yeah. And obviously we kind of tweaked that for the title. So it's read the times, but the idea hopefully is that we're reading the times uh, in light of the eternities or from the perspective of the eternities, you know, Thoreau likes to overstate things. Of course, uh, I try to can help my students see this so that when they read the first chapter of Walden, they don't throw it across the room, but they kind of you know, take him a little bit more lightly and in, enter into his wit and his biting cultural commentary. Um, so yeah, Thoreau has a, has a way of offending people, but I think his, his general advice in that essay, which he wrote as a kind of, or gave as a kind of follow-up to Walden is pretty good that if we want to understand our times well and and actually get what's going on and, and be able to discern how we should we should understand and respond and act upon them, we might have to give more attention to the eternities, to things that, that are perennial and not new, and less to what is new. And that can seem kind of counterintuitive, but it's it's not really burying your head in the sand. It's um, getting the the perspective you need to engage wisely. And, you know, Thoreau is often criticized of disappearing to Walden Pond for two years and ignoring the, um, the, the political or cultural or social crises of his day. But uh, he was only at Walden for two years. And even while at Walden, he participated in the life of the town quite a bit. And he was quite involved with stuff like abolition, uh, anti-slavery. Of course, his famous... You know, he went to jail for a night uh, <laughs> overnight over his refusal to pay the tax that supported the Mexican War that he thought was uh, about a colonialist or imperialist war. So uh, Thoreau was quite engaged, but he tried to be engaged from um, a more rooted posture, I guess. So you had a you did have a quote at the beginning that really. Um that gave me pause and in, in a positive way, but in sort of a uh, self-indicting way, perhaps. So you, you talk about the idea of, of news as an idol, and I will admit that I, I feel like that, that sometimes that terminology is maybe overused in that ev everybody wants to talk about everything is being turned into an idol. Yet, <laughs> having said all of that, you have this quote from Simone Weil, uh, that the habit of attention is the substance of prayer. 
and that really maybe more than any other quote you had in the book um, that that really stuck in my brain because uh, I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of insight there and there's a lot of truth there and it and it really does back up this this idea that we we become so consumed with current events the news that we we are essentially turning to it in a state of prayer right that that's that, that because that's where our, that's where our attention is and you're you're trying to get us first of all to get us to see that and second to to redirect our attention in in positive ways yeah, and I, I guess that goes along too with the quote from Hegel I have. Um, you know, he says that that reading the morning paper is the realist's act of daily prayer, um, mm-hmm. and because you know he's fairly secular minded and and sees the paper as the source of or the record of reality as opposed to scripture or or actual prayer. And so, yeah, someone you know like Simone who is so. Uh, I think you can't read her without being convicted and feeling feeling like a I don't know lazy or unholy person. <laughs> She's so uh, astringent, but yeah, I think this idea that that she has that uh, our 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 patterns and habits of of attention can be holy, can be uh, prayerful, but so often they are um, lazy or or just uh, self serving, and and so. Yeah, I think she she has a lot to offer us in terms of encouraging, challenging us to uh, to watch what we attend to. So Thoreau talks about this idea that he refers to as curiosity, and and I guess to a, to a large degree, it's kind of what it sounds like. But but he means it in the sense of not not in curiosity, simply in um, seeking out worthwhile knowledge, but curiosity in that you're just sort of always interested in what the next thing is going to be, I guess. It's sort of how I took yeah, that's right. uh, his, his use of that. Is sort of what what's going to be the next clickbait story that I can I can jump into. <laughs> yeah, and he talks about, you know, his townspeople who would go to the, to watch the um, courtroom trial in, in town that day, even though it, the outcome doesn't affect them, but it's gripping drama or, uh, you know, people who have to go follow the fire truck to see where it's going to go because it could be interesting. Uh, and he just sort of makes fun of the human propensity to pay attention to things that are, uh, kind of titillating or amusing, but, but actually don't affect us and uh, are more distracting than they are worthwhile. And of course he tries to practice other forms of attention, you know, famously going to, to Walden, but you know, he also, one of his projects that was kind of a lifelong project was uh, trying, I don't, I don't talk about this in the book, but he, he tries to uh, track the kind of minutia of the seasons in his journals. So he'll, he'll go on these long walks and uh, collate, you know, this is the day that this species of flower bloomed this year. And here's when it bloomed in previous years and, and kind of uh, orient himself by these very, um, subtle shifts in in the day each year or, or he'll keep track of when the ice first breaks on walden um so you know he's trying to experiment with other forms of attention that require him to look and see and relate to the world from a different habit than just 
what can amuse me right now? Yeah, on a, a much, um, much more restrained version of that, I've been oh, past a little while uh, when it's warm enough and dry enough. I try to try to take coffee out on the yeah on the patio and um, and the mo- the thing that I enjoy the most there are the birds and I've um, you know been been kind of trying to trying to pay attention. To, to, to what bird is doing what and try to differentiate uh, calls and so forth. And that's not as always as, as easy yeah. <laughs> as, as you might think it is. And, uh, but, but it, it, it helps just that, you know, brief uh, and not even every day because I'm not always able to do it, but that brief sort of immersion in in a sort of a semi nature. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not at Walden Pond. Right. I'm on my patio, but it's, you know, I'm surrounded by trees and uh, lots of birds and, and, and that sort of thing. And it really does help to soothe the soul and clear the mind of, you know, we're worrying about uh, what was the joke he made about, about uh, uh, the princess yes. having has the whooping cough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, that doesn't affect, it doesn't really matter right. what, what Prince Harry's new daughter's <laughs> name is, you know, that's right. Uh, that, that, that doesn't, I, you know, and, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say I actually have an opinion on it, but I don't need one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not anything I need to have an opinion on because it doesn't it doesn't affect me. It's not this is not a person I'll ever meet. It's not a person who will have any impact directly on my life. And yet um, yet I know about it. I didn't. It's not something I sought out. Right. But but I know about it. And uh, and so everybody has an opinion on what whether the name is a good name and. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. It, it reminds me. I think I quote Barbara Kingsolver on this, but she uh, talks about how when she's out in her cabin uh, in the summertime, she just is kind of unplugged, and I think she gets the, the paper or some maybe a quarterly periodical, but you know she's not on the radio or certainly not on Twitter. And I can't remember which. I think it was some royal person who actually died in a plane crash, maybe or something. Oh, I think it was JFK Jr. No, that's who it was. It was JFK. Yeah. That's right. And. Um, yeah, when the, when his plane crashed, you know, somebody told us like, "Aren't you, aren't you distraught? Aren't you emotionally moved by this?" And she said, "Well, I didn't even know it happened, but you know, I am concerned about my neighbor who's uh, having some issues, and I can make a casserole for her, or I can help her. You know, I can respond to the news uh, that's that's nearby." But I think your point too is, not only do you have, not only do you not necessarily need to seek this stuff out, you actually have to. Uh, cultivate habits so that it doesn't find you because uh, it's right. seeking you exactly. out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and of course, um, Thoreau talks about this, the whole idea of, of marketing and advertising. And, and it's a big theme with Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. uh, obviously from, from very early in his writing yep. that, you know, that we become objects of, you know, of, of marketers and advertisers. And, you know, we ultimately just become, become uh, consumerist abstractions and that 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 obviously is a problem especially when we essentially or you know have a de facto view of ourselves as yeah. that and that's uh, and that's sort of what happens and you know as somebody uh, who you know with this podcast you know I I want to 
I want to get that in front out in front of people. And you know, it's not like uh, I'm, money's going to start pouring in if they see it. But you know, I have an interest. So I've I've spent time on this, and I think these are interesting, worthwhile conversations. I'd like for people to listen to it. And so, you know, I try to, you know, I'll hit it my feed and try to get people to see it. And, um, you know, in a fairly, at least from my perspective, a fairly benign way, but you know, there, there are much more insidious people than me right, right. <laughs> who, are, who are out there trying to promote whatever it is, you know, iPhone, uh, you know, new candy bar, uh, uh, you know, pick, pick your consumerist item. And uh, and to to try to manipulate us. And one of the things that we've discovered, and you you talk about this some, is, is you know the the degree to which um, a modern uh, with algorithms and so forth that, that we can be targeted in this, this hyper granular way, right? And so uh, we we are becoming more and more victims of manipulation. Uh, by the news and by advertisers and by Twitter and, and all of these things. Yeah. And speaking of Barry, uh, I think I cite his essay in defense of literacy where he quotes and draws on, uh, the, the essay by Thoreau where Thoreau makes this claim, read not the times, read the eternities. And Barry talks about that at length there and the ways that when we become, you know, subliterate when we're not able to uh, think and talk with precise, accurate terms, because our our mental furniture and our uh, sort of linguistic imaginations have been formed by shallow entertainment. Uh, then we are much more susceptible to marketing slogans and uh, whether it be sort of political or ideological slogans or um, you know, products that we need to buy or, or what any, everyone's just trying to sell us something and make us think a certain way. And if we haven't taken the time to, um, be formed by thoughtful, precise, nuanced writing and thinking, then we'll, we'll be more likely to think in memes and, uh, he, he doesn't use memes obviously, but that, you know, that right idea. Um, and, and so, yeah, we become kind of, less of an individual person and more of just a member of a mass society. Yeah. It's this, you know, this attention to language that is, you know, we're, we're moving so, so much away from, I, I remember when I uh, first started uh, my association with, with Russell Kirk years ago, that when I first became exposed to, um, to T.S. Eliot's, uh, line about purifying the dialect of the tribe, right? So you're you're trying to you're trying to make language precise, and that's that is one of uh, clearly one of Wendell Berry's lifelong goals. Absolutely, um, yeah. the the precision of language, the uh, that 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 we need we need to be precise in our language and be precise in, therefore in our understanding. But like you say, memes. Uh, emojis, gifs, right. uh, whatever, right. and, you know, and, and, um, there are ways in which, uh, a meme can carry, uh, it can carry a lot of weight and subtlety of meaning if you understand that language. Sure. Um, but 
if that's all the only way we know how to communicate, it becomes a problem. Yeah. And uh, and we're getting we seem to be sliding more and more that way. Yeah, it, it's you know maybe it's a great way of making jokes or you know expressing irony or whatever, but it's hard to to sort of carry on a complicated train of thought through through memes and gifs. But it, it's inadequate, right? It's it's a fine tool, but it can't become the replacement. Now here's the uh, let me see. I had that Barry quote. Um... It's on page 27 of your book towards the bottom. Uh, as Barry puts it, we must speak and teach our children to speak a language precise and articulate and lively enough to tell the truth about the world as we know it. Yeah. And that is, that's hard to do. And we, you know, we're, we're such, uh, such constant victims of propaganda and that's not aimed at at any particular political side, we're just victims of propaganda that, that, that at every turn from everywhere, uh, that language is manipulated and used as a weapon essentially. And, uh, and, and that, uh, that precise articulate lively way of speaking that, that Barry references is a rare commodity these days. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, uh, and it's worth trying to, reclaim for ourselves and our families and our, our communities. Well, you, you make the statement and I think that this is sort of the, this is what we have to accept if, if we're going to move forward in the way that you're, you're advising us to in your book. And that is that we, uh, we can't and shouldn't be informed about, about everything. We just, we have to accept not only uh, that there are limitations to what we can know, but, but there are actually limitations on what we ought to be concerned about or want to be exposed to. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and I think part of that is just recognizing our human individual limitations. Um, we're limited, finite creatures, and we can't know everything. We don't have to have an opinion about everything. But, but so much of the discourse these days seems to suggest that we have some kind of moral obligation to um, ha- have the right opinion about uh, all these topics. And, and so oftentimes we have to take shortcuts, right? And so we just imbibe the opinion that our tribe says we're supposed to have. But we certainly don't have the time to investigate or think through whether that's what we actually think. Um, but we can hold it very, very strongly, nonetheless. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we, tr- we try not to let... Uh... A lack of knowledge get in the way of of, uh, <laughs> of strength of conviction. That's exactly right. And so I'm just suggesting maybe we can relieve ourselves from that impossible burden of trying to have the right opinion of everything and um, consider what what handful of subjects we might be called to study and know, and then hopefully uh, respond to and act upon, uh, so that we're not just passive consumers of content but active participants in what's going on around in our, in our neighborhood, whether that be the digital neighborhood or uh, the physical one. So you have a, a couple of, uh, of pieces of advice or, or a strategy, I guess, if you will, to, to get us out of this. And one is to escape and I guess they're related along this lines, but one is to get out of the, what you call the, the presentism, the, the, the idea of the simply living in the moment 
of whatever news bit, you know, bre- breaking news uh, that is all news is breaking and it's constantly breaking. And, you know, there's no such thing. Well, this is, you know, this is news that's not really breaking, but you know, yeah. it, it, there's always an, you know, what, whatever news is, it it's an emergency uh, that you, that you know this and that we've, we've got to absent ourselves from that. And one of the ways, I guess the second part of that, one of the ways that you propose to do that, not only read, uh, this is one of the things that Jacobs would say, you know, get out of, get out of the reading just current people, but read people of the past, but also living on a different timeline that we don't get caught up in what you call Kronos time, but Kairos time. So explain a little bit about what you're talking about there. Yeah. So, you know, the, the word news implies, as you suggest, what's happening now, what's new. And so that privileges this sense of Kronos time, just what's, what's the latest thing, what's happening today. But really, we don't have to make sense of our world based upon uh, events or, or things that uh, happen to occur at the same chronological time. You know, the only thing that unites everything on the newspaper front page is that it happened yesterday. Um, but instead, I, I draw on this other notion of time that's uh, a Greek term, kairos, and it's certainly an old uh, kind of a way that humans have experienced and articulated time. <clears throat> uh, time as sort of pattern or cycle or the right moment to do something. So... I suppose agriculture is maybe an easy way to understand this in terms of the right time to plant seeds or to, to weed or to water or to, to harvest. Uh, we, we get this notion of time in, in terms of seasons, but it can also, I talk about it in theological terms, right? Uh, Christ talks about, you know, his time, his, his kairos had not yet come, um, the sense of trying to understand our lives and the significance of what's going on and what we should pay att- pay attention to based upon um, a kind of cyclical patterned whole, a, a drama that we might be part of. And maybe that can help us prioritize what we should attend to and also uh, give us a better framework for interpreting its significance. I mean, so often, you know, we saw this in the last year. I don't write about it too much because the book was mostly done by this. But so much of the last year, every story I thought was framed. This is unprecedented, right? This is never before. <laughs> and of course, some of the things of this last year were unprecedented, but a lot was not unprecedented, right? right. There's been a lot of diseases. There's been a lot of uh, economic shutdowns. Uh, a lot of this stuff has happened before. Maybe not in, in quite this way. But uh, this kind of obsession with... Uh, things that have never happened and are really new prevents us from understanding the things that are happening in their broader human um, context in which maybe it's not radically new. Maybe we can look to previous examples to better make sense of what's going on and, and not be so caught up in uh, how crazy and, and new things are. Well, and I appreciated your your discussion of, for example, the liturgical year. Yeah. That we this is a a way of gauging time and the appropriateness of seasons by something other than simply um, the news cycle, or that that you're looking to uh, kind of a, a a holy ordering of your time and 
and what you do when and that and 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 I think also importantly what you think about. Yeah, you know, if you go th- you go through uh, Lent or through Advent and you're thinking about uh, particular things and it may influence your reading of you know what what you're what you're looking at and and that sort of thing and I think that it can it can cause us to be reflective on issues perhaps if there wasn't a a particular time prompting us or if the time wasn't of a particular length or the, the time of of lent say uh, that we might give it shorter shrift than we ought <laughs> right. to, you know, um, that, that maybe I need to spend a little more time on the, the idea of, of, of penitence than, than I am naturally inclined to do <laughs> something along those lines. Absolutely. And I think that, that, you know, if, if we practice liturgical time and are formed by that, then that can become a really important counterbalance or counterweight to the chronological time that we often are habituated to. So uh, we remember, oh, that's not the only time that just because something's new doesn't mean it's the most important thing in my life. Maybe the the most important uh, pattern or drama or time by which I live is this liturgical uh, theological time that that I belong to and and act in. And then that becomes a, a horizon or a framework by which we try to read the the events of our contemporary life. So a good example of that that you talk about in the book, of course, would be Thomas Merton, um, who who retreated out of chronological time uh, by becoming a monk, and at and at times also a hermit within within um, within that life, but who also stayed engaged with important issues of the day. So walk us through a little bit of, of, of sort of maybe what Merton can mean to us, those of us who don't live in a monastery, but how, how can that inform how we approach the news? Yeah. Another good Kentucky resident, right? Well, I, you know, I, I won't, uh, I won't admit that I pick out just the Kentucky <laughs> people to talk about, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Merton's a great example, like Thoreau in some ways, of somebody who was really committed to eternal uh, truth and, and things that, you know, and, and trying to to connect his life to, you know, the eternities, to, to the drama of God's life through his his uh, monastic lifestyle. Um, but but then used that foundation, used that um, uh, grounding to inform his participation in particular social and political events of his day. So yeah, he was certainly involved in things like race, the civil rights movement, or um, war and nuclear weapons uh, and others. But he, he didn't try to, or, or interreligious dialogue, right? But he didn't try to have an opinion about everything. Uh, the, the amount of time that he could spend on his writing was limited because he had to spend time praying or training the other uh, the novices or whatever his monastic duties might be. So um, just trying to give, give another example of someone like Merton who practices what I call a contemplative politics. You know, he's still politically active, but from this contemplative posture. And I think it's in one of his journals that he has this great line that I quote about how Christians should have quiet homes. Uh, mm, that yes, we can't expect yes, I, to have I, I uh, this kind of background noise 
always in our lives and be able to think clearly or or hear God's voice and how how we might be called to respond to the events of our day. So, you know, sometimes I think I wanted to be careful in the book not to not to suggest that we should just bury our heads in the sand and ignore what's going on around us because a lot of the times I think what I recommend sounds like that, but um, I, I think the irony or the paradox is that the more sometimes the more that we withdraw. Um, the more fruitful our engagement can become. Well, I, th- I think that maybe a way to look at it, it, it makes us maybe better armed for the task, right? Yeah. We're, we have, we, we are, we're not spread so thin. We have deeper roots in whatever it is we are engaged with. We were more informed. And I think, would th- would then care about it in a much more, not simply passionate way, but a much more substantive way that we can, that we can really uh, understand something in a in a way that, like we were talking about earlier, that we have you know we don't ne- necessarily know a lot about it, but we we have very clearly defined opinions about it, right? Um, a lot of times our opinions will change or at least uh, we hope that they will become more nuanced as we delve into the depths of something. We might actually find out why it is that even the, even people we don't agree with, but why it is they might reasonably think what they think. Um, and, and then we could perhaps engage with them in a fruitful way, or even heaven forbid, find common ground with them <laughs> on, right. on some issues. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and so, yeah, I like the way you put that. I think it's exactly right. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Let's shift gears a little bit and, um, and talk about uh, a, a few other things. I know that you are in the process, as we touched on at the beginning, uh, going to a new uh, a new place uh, to teach. And of course, that transition was not necessarily brought about by something pleasant and leaving uh, Spring Arbor. What, um, and you, you of course have, have written about this and written about uh, Wendell Berry and the issue of higher education. Higher education, qua higher education is something that you have been concerned about prior to this, but you've sort of gotten thrown into the middle of, of, uh, I guess we'll say, uni- universities reprioritizing. Uh, can we, <laughs> that's can a nice we that way? Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what have you learned about all of this that sort of help you better understand higher education and maybe, um, what, what would, um, what would you recommend as sort of maybe looking through a, a Wendell Berry type lens uh, on on this higher education it, it, issue that we have? We, you know, we're seeing schools dropping classics programs or maybe dropping Latin and Greek from classics programs, yeah. which, which seems, uh, I mean, that, that uh, th- those are words that, that don't seem like they fit at all, but nonetheless um, reflect at least some, some, uh, relation to reality. So, what what have you learned? What insights have you gained? And, and through sort of the life of hard knocks on this, 
Oh man, Alan, it's a big question. I mean, yeah, this, this last year has kind of been a crazy year uh, professionally and personally for me because of all this stuff. I, I mean, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Jack and I, my colleague Jack Baker and I wrote this book about Barry and higher education. And, you know, we we weren't optimistic, I don't think, about the state of higher ed, but we we were hopeful and kind of cast what I think is a Barryan vision for liberal arts, uh, education that, that trains students to serve their places and yeah, get a good job, but not, not live in their careers, not, not have their career become their identity such that they move from place to place. Um, you know, seeking always their own personal, uh, prosperity at the expense of their communities. And, uh, and then, yeah, then, then last summer I was part of this project, uh, this liberating arts project, trying to think through how might the, the COVID-19 pandemic and all of these disruptions provide an inflection point for universities to not to abandon the liberal arts, but to double down on uh, moral and, uh, you know, character formation for students and, and give them the, the intellectual tools and the virtues they need to, to be good members of their communities. And then uh, yeah. And then the summer I got laid off and it was kind of came out of left field. I mean, I knew, we knew our university was struggling, but um, I don't think anybody thought that my position was at risk or that tenured faculty were going to be laid off in mass like we were. So, yeah, I, I think it just kind of blindsided me and uh, taught me, you know, things that I knew intellectually about the fragility of higher ed but it, it made those things become much more real. So yeah, I wrote about this a little bit for Breaking Ground last fall. But it's, it's, was a, it was a interesting year to be on the job market and to be wrestling with, um, you know, is there a way that we can stay here? Is there a way we can go back to where our families are in the, in the Northwest, where housing is kind of ridiculously unaffordable because of uh, Amazon and Microsoft and, and what they can pay? Uh, or, you know, what, what is my vocation to higher ed and to, to students and to the profession? So, um, yeah, it was, a, a quite the adventure, but I think we could not have asked for a, a school more well-positioned in a lot of ways than Grove City in terms of, um, a commitment to Christian liberal arts education, uh, that, and a, and a, you know, a kind of a rural location, which we liked. Um, so we're, we're very grateful for the way it turned out, I guess. Um, it was certainly not how we would have scripted our lives, but, um, yeah, we're, we're hoping that in a year or two, we'll look back and, um, be, be more, more uh, grateful for what we've gone through than traumatized by it. But, uh, B Barry wrote me last fall when he found out I lost my job. I guess somebody else told him and he expressed his condolences. And um, so we exchanged a few letters. And then when I got this Grove City job, I, I wrote and I said, I hope that that despite my best intentions, I am not becoming one of these rootless professors that Eric Zinsu <laughs> warned about in the 80s. Uh, and he wrote back a very gracious, gracious letter. But, uh, you know, that is always one of my fears that that uh, despite the communities, you know, the, the, the goods that I talk about in terms of community and roots. Um, I have become one of these people who uh, is a educational migrant, but hopefully not. Well, I, 
I I have a lot of sympathy with that. I of course a, a period of my life, a, a longer period of my life, I was uh, working with churches as a minister, and um, you you do get that rootless feel, and that's not what you want. And I don't think it's really good for uh, not only not good for uh, ministers, or in this case with you with professors, but it's also not good for the institutions they serve. Um, because there is, um, th- there isn't, uh, a, uh, I guess a trusting feeling there can be, a uh, you know, where our relationship seems to, to only be this you know, sort of exchange of services and pay kind of thing. And that, and really to build culture as you and I, I, I think are both interested in that you have to go beyond that. You have to have something you have to have something better than that. And, um, and, and so it's, it's those, those sorts of things have to be built on, on kind of trust and long-term commitment, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is what, how Barry writes so eloquently about local culture as something that builds over time when people stick around and, you know, uh, the institutional life of oftentimes, as you point out, churches or, or higher ed in the U.S. is not conducive to that. But I do think, um, you know, despite the headwinds, despite the institutional challenges, uh, another thing that Barry says has stuck with me this year, which is that education is always free. You know, that really what happens in the classroom, if you peel back the credentialing and the accreditation and the money that's exchanging hands and all of the... Um, you know, the, the stuff around the industry, you peel that back and it's a, a conversation between a, a two different generations, you know, hopefully trying to pass on the wisdom of, the, of previous eras to uh, today's young people. And that is a, is a gift and it's, you, you can't commoditize that. And so, yeah, maybe I will not be able to serve in that role some, some point or, Maybe certain institutions that have fostered that will close, but the uh, the practice of education will endure, and uh, the, its its essential gift quality uh, will endure too. So, I think it you know, kind of realizing the fragility of your profession is maybe good for thinking more about its enduring or eternal merits. So hopefully, I think that applies both to, to church and to education. Right, I think so. I mean, you're, both of those are. Well, I don't. I don't know if if there's anything more important than either of them, right? <laughs> right. Um, as far as as far as society and culture goes, the uh, uh, you know our obligations to God, our our need to learn. Uh, and of course, both of those and, and that both of those grew out of the same thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so those are, I would say, you know, continual obligations of man. That that's you know that the root of of who we are, what we're supposed to be, and um, but we don't we don't always treat those things with the the seriousness. And I guess your book on the news is is trying to get us to think about 
you know, it's really it's really a book about education again, right? It's it's trying to get us to think about about um, our engagement with news from more of a uh, a rooted educational standpoint rather than uh, just simply a transitory current event standpoint, maybe. Yeah, that's right, and and maybe suggesting that even if we don't think about it that way, it is nonetheless educating and informing us the way that we the way that we consume the news. And so we should be careful how we're being educated um, and, <laughs> right. and take more, take more uh, care, I guess, in terms of how we, what, what curriculum we submit ourselves to. So yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think, you know, tying into, since we're discussing church a little bit here, that I think that, that also uh, certainly applies to, our understanding of uh, of of the holy and the, the understanding of uh, what we talked about the liturgical calendar and uh, we see a lot uh, I think and I've I see a lot of this on Twitter of of people making sort of wild crazy theological statements uh, I don't know I mean I don't even some of them I don't even know even know I'm using theological in broad sense there <laughs> right. but 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 they are not. Um, they are not statements that are informed by deep thought and yeah. study and, yeah. and the tradition of uh, of Christian of Christian understanding. And uh, you know, you you want to tell people, you know, take take a pause and and you know go go to go to the monastery for a couple of years and and read about some of these things first. And um, but um, but this this transitory kind of idea does affect those and we have to fight against it, I think, um, actively. And the place to start with that is with ourselves. And that's one of the things you highlight with, uh, with Merton in your book that, that Merton was very much inward looking in whatever issue he was talking about of what is my, not only what is my responsibility to this, but what is my sort of, what is my guilt? Yeah. Uh, for this. Yeah. I, I, that's one of the points that I think is really helpful about Merton. And he's, you know, he's getting that from Jesus too. I think when those people come to Jesus and say that, uh, did you hear about the, the tower that fell on those people in Siloam and killed a bunch of them? Um, right. You know, Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, you know, this is the lesson or here, you know, they should have better infrastructure bills. He says, um, you know, don't think that they were more guilty than you. Think about your own guilt and think about your own, uh, the ways that you might be uh, meriting divine judgment. It's kind of a uh, quite the turn he, he, actually, he <laughs> right. executes. But Merton is like that too. I mean, Merton, um, you know, I, I cite some passages where he's talking about Nazism and Hitler, and he's questioning what his own complicity in, in the rise of Hitler might be, which seems absurd. But I, I think Merton is trying to, which, and this is the opposite of Twitter culture, right? Where you're all, <laughs> yes. Uh, showing your virtue and pointing out the flaws in your opponents. Merton is so attuned to his own complicity and his own um, guilt, as you say. So I I think that is such a helpful um, antidote to the the culture that we inhabit today. And, you know, beginning from a place of looking at the the beam in our own eye before we want to take the the moat out of our neighbor's eye right well one of the one of the many hats you wear is um 
is editor at uh, Front Porch Republic, which is, of course, a place where um, where this podcast has a has a little bit of a home. That's right. And uh, how how are things going at uh, at Front Porch Republic? And uh, and what are what are prospects for the future of Front Porch Republic? Yeah, I think things are going pretty well. You know, we always it, we're kind of a small volunteer organization, and in many ways, I think that's healthy and that's good. It's a it's a hobby that uh, is run by amateurs, you know, people who do it for love. Um, but if we can do things better, we want to do that too, uh, to the to the extent that we're able. So it has been good in the last couple of years. Um, I've got we've got a couple of new people helping out with editorial work. Um, Matt Stewart, who's a, a classical high school teacher out in Idaho, and now Doug Sikama, who's a professor up at Redeemer in Canada. And uh, so that's been really helpful in terms of taking some things off my plate, which is actually very helpful this summer since I'm going to be busy moving. Um, right. <laughs> but I think they've, they've added some good perspective and uh, broadened our network. So that's been good. And we're hoping to making, making plans right now for our fall conference. We obviously had to cancel last year, right? but we have, we have plans to gather at middle Tennessee state university. And those are oh, always yeah. um, great, great chance to see old friends. And I think it's going to be particularly sweet this year after uh, a long time of absence from such gatherings uh to get a chance to gather in person and um think and talk and eat and you know just uh en- yeah enjoy friendship so i, I think uh, fpr never wants to get you know we, we don't want to have to get so big or or professional that we uh, that it becomes not fun anymore and so far it hasn't so that's that's a good thing i think what uh, what are the dates on the conference? Have those been settled? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's October. Let me look here. I think it is October sixteenth. Does that sound right? Yeah, October sixteenth, a Saturday. Okay, so, very good. Yeah. Do you have? Uh, is there a theme that you were building? Yeah, on? the theme is uh, after virtual, the art of recovering lost goods. Um, and we're still we have a lead on a keynote, but I can't say anything because he's not confirmed yet. But um, we're starting to, to populate panels. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll have a, a lineup and then over the summer, get, get registration rolled out. But those are usually pretty inexpensive. We try to keep it affordable, um, try to have a, a discount rate for undergrads and yeah, just, just have a good conversation. Yeah. I went to the one in Louisville, uh, a couple of years ago that Wendell Berry spoke at and, uh, certainly recommend them. To, uh, to people and Middle Tennessee State is uh, is within striking distance of that's right uh, Central Kentucky yeah. so we may may have to may have to venture down there I, I don't know that time. we're ever going to do one that was as big as the Louisville one that was that was pretty big a couple years ago Barry is a is quite the draw among FPR he folks. is a draw <laughs> yeah that's right that's right that that's definitely uh, that's definitely a, a, a Barry sympathetic crowd, that's right I think <laughs> well. Jeff, I very much appreciate uh, you being on. And of course, the book uh, is available wherever fine books are sold. It's Reading the Times by Jeffrey Bilbro from IVP Press. And uh, we, I would encourage everybody to read this one. And uh, I think it's, it's very informative and, and puts a little bit of, of a break, perhaps, on our, on our Twitter-driven world. Well, thanks so much, Alan. I really enjoyed talking with you. 